Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, Romans chapter 14. And I'm gonna, I've got a lot of introduction tonight because Romans 14 addresses an issue that kind of comes on the tails of what we talked about last week. If you remember last week, the biggest issue was that we're to love one another. And so Paul is going to talk today, or in chapter 14, about how do we practically do that when it comes to issues that we may not agree upon. Okay, so for those of you listening on podcast, you can't see this. For those of you watching on Facebook Live, you'll just have to do the best you can to see this. I've drawn this often, but it sets up what we're going to talk about tonight because Paul addresses this. Okay, so in the middle of the bullseye, you have dogma. Okay, so dogma are those absolute essentials that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. So if you deviate from dogma, you're deviating from Christianity. So examples of dogma would be the Trinity, Jesus being fully God, fully man, Jesus being sinless, the cross, the resurrection, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, the authority of the Bible, heaven, hell, the, the absolute essentials of Christianity. Now, there are some secondary doctrines that we can agree to disagree upon. So there are some doctrines that the Bible addresses that we may disagree upon. So, for example, a doctrine would be, can you lose your salvation or not? Okay, That's not a matter of a dogma. Because our Arminian, Nazarene, and Wesleyan brothers and sisters believe you can lose your salvation and they're still going to heaven. So it's a secondary doctrine. Um, view of, your, of end times. Your end times view. Are you mid-trib? Are you post-trib? Are you amillennial? Are you post-millennial? Are you pre-millennial? Are you pan-millennial? It's all going to pan out in the end. All, all those types of things. Those are things the Bible teaches that you can have differences of, of the way you interpret those. That's kind of why we have denominations, different doctrines. Okay, then there are what we would call preferences. Okay, so a preference is you can't find chapter and verse in your Bible, but it's I prefer this. So I prefer the King James Bible over the ESV Bible. I prefer pews to chairs. I prefer a praise team to a choir with robes. I prefer blue carpet to green carpet. Those are preferences. Okay. Now, there's one area that this, this drawing doesn't quite address. And that is, what are some gray areas that the Bible doesn't directly address, but that we as Christians have freedom to do, and we may disagree upon those and have some strong opinions about that. They're not dogma, and they're not even doctrines. They're more 
gray areas. So let me give you some examples that I have come up with, and maybe you guys can come up with some more of some. Okay, so like what I'm talking about a gray area is oftentimes in pastoral ministry, somebody will come and ask me how they handle a certain situation, and I can't point them to a Bible verse that says, thou shalt or thou shalt not. It's a matter of wisdom. It's a matter of conscience. Okay? So that's really what we're going to talk about. Matters of conscience, matters of freedom. So Christian freedom. So let me just talk about some gray areas. Okay? Do you as a Christian celebrate, I don't want to use the word celebrate, do you let your children dress up for trick-or-treat on Halloween? Okay. Is there a Bible verse that says, thou shalt not dress up for Halloween? But does, are there people that have strong opinions one way or the other? I'm not here to give the, 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 which, views, which view you should hold to. I'm just saying that's a hot-button issue because you can have some knock-down, drag-out fights with people that say, absolutely not, my children will never dress up for Halloween, we won't celebrate it, it's a satanic holiday, to other Christians that say, oh, yeah, our kids dress up and we go trick-or-treating, it's okay. It's a secondary issue. Okay, this is kind of an old one, but this is one that causes division, at least caused division a while back. Is it okay for a Christian to read or watch Harry Potter? There's some people that are absolutely like, Harry Potter's of the devil, you can't, it's, it's Harry Potter's terrible. Then other people are like, that's my favorite book, it's my favorite movies. Can Christians agree to disagree upon that? Okay, is there a Bible verse that says, thou shalt not watch a rated R movie? Okay, watching rated R movies. Does a Christian have a freedom to watch an R-rated movie? Okay. What about listening to quote-unquote secular music, whatever that is? Versus Christian music, whatever that is. Because music's music, when you put an adjective in front of it, I mean, a Christian's a noun, not a, not a verb, not an adjective. You're a Christian. Is there such a thing as Christian music? Or is it music put out by Christians? Anyway, homeschooling versus public schooling. Should you only have your kids in public school? Should you only have your kids in homeschool? Okay. I've even had this asked at our church. There are some people that think that it is wrong to have a Christmas tree. Okay? There are some people that are offended that we have a Christmas tree on, on, on Christmas. Um, social drinking. Is it okay to drink? There are some hot topics where the Bible doesn't come down adamantly as a dogma or a doctrine. It's, it's almost like a preference, but it's a gray area. It's a matter of conscience. And so... Romans chapters 14 and half of chapter 15 address this issue, okay? So before we actually get into the passage, we've got to talk about the two groups that are in the church. There are Jews and Gentiles in the church, and evidently there's some problems between the two. So do you guys remember Pentecost, the day of Pentecost? What happened on the day of Pentecost? It was how many days? 50 days after the cross and resurrection. Peter stands up and preaches the first Christian sermon, and a bunch of people get saved. Now, if you go back to Acts chapter 2, you will find out that there are people all over the world that come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. There are people from Rome. Those people that got saved at Pentecost... This is what, how most scholars believe the church got started. Those that were saved at Pentecost who were from Rome, probably Priscilla and Aquila were one of those, the husband and wife, they went back to Rome 
and probably started the church there in Rome. Okay. So the church was probably started by Jewish Christians who got saved at Pentecost. Now remember, Paul hasn't been there yet. Paul has not been to this church. So it was probably started by Jewish Christians. Okay, So there's probably a mixture of Jews and Gentiles coming to the church. But So at the beginning, it was predominantly Jewish. And then because Rome is a big, huge metropolitan city, you probably have Gentiles or non-Jews coming into the church. But something happened huge in A.D. 49. So in A.D. 49... The emperor at the time of the Roman Empire, his name was Claudius. He basically made an edict kicking all the Jews out of Rome. Okay? So at that point, if you were Jewish, you had to leave Rome. You couldn't live there anymore. So if you had a predominantly Jewish church and you had to leave and move somewhere else like maybe Corinth or Ephesus, what does that leave as your church? Gentiles, okay? Now, five years later, in AD 54, when Nero became emperor of Rome, he allowed the Jews to come back. So for a five-year period, so how was the church started? Jewish. Jews and Gentiles lived together. Jews were kicked out. For five years, you had a predominantly Gentile church. Now the Jews are allowed to come back, and they're reintegrating into the life of the church. So you have a church that's now trying to figure out the Gentiles have kind of been doing things their way for five years. And now the Jewish Christians are coming back and there's a little bit of tension in how they're going to interact together. Because the Jewish Christians, there's probably a group of Jewish Christians in the church in Rome that still had some deep ties to Judaism and wanted to continue practicing some of those things as a matter of conscience. Okay? So when we go into Romans chapter 14 and 15, Paul's going to talk about the weaker brother or sister, the weaker Christian, and the stronger Christian. Okay? So we have to ask the question, who is the weaker brother? So that's the first question. When Paul is addressing the weaker brother, and when I say brother, brother and sister, just for the sake of how he talks about it here, he talks about the one who's weak in faith. Who is that? There's a lot of different views, but here's the predominant view. These are Christian Jews who were still practicing the dietary laws and the special days of the Old Testament law. Okay. Now let's think about Jews for a moment. Rome has not been kind to the Jewish people. They were kicked out, had to come back for five years. All along, the Jewish people have never really had their own identity ever since, you know, all the way probably back to the Maccabean Revolt, which was, you know, a hundred years, hundreds of years before even Christ. So they, they, you're a Jewish Christian, but you live in a Roman world what are, the, what, what are the only two things you can hold on to that would keep you tied to your Jewish roots that aren't necessarily, necessarily going to make you a heretic, okay? Because the book of Hebrews talks about going back to the whole sacrificial system of Judaism. But 
let's just say there are two things that you could do as a Jewish Christian that aren't necessarily wrong, but you would want to do them to hold on to your Jewishness. What would be those? One would be dietary laws, kosher. Okay? I, as a Jewish Christian, you can say, I want to still be kosher and eat my kosher food. Okay? That's not really a matter of salvation. That's a personal preference. Okay? The other one is, I still want to celebrate the Jewish holidays. So when Passover comes around and when the Feast of, of Booths comes around and when these different Day of Atonement comes around, I, I, I want to still celebrate those because at least those are something that still keeps my Jewish identity without me going all the way and compromising back to Judaism, which is not the gospel. Okay, so let's just pick up in Romans chapter 14 and, and read verses 1 through 12 and let's just see how Paul talks about this. I'm giving you all that background to help you understand where Paul is coming from in Romans chapter 14. And then we're going to make some principles as we, as we go through this. Okay, so Paul says, As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will make, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Okay, verse 1 is Paul's main point. The main command. Paul tells the stronger brother or the stronger Christian to welcome or accept the one who's weak in faith, and not to quarrel over non-essentials or secondary issues. Okay? As these Jews are integrating back into the life of Rome, they're practicing kosher laws and observing special days. And the Gentiles are like, this is dumb, this is stupid, this is weird, you don't have to do that. And the Jews are like, well, we want to do that. And so there's some problems going on. Now, Here's what a church can experience. There's two extremes a church can experience, or a Christian. And maybe you've been in one of these types of churches. Okay, one extreme is what we would say is legalism. You are elevating non-essentials or preferences. I don't have my drawing up there anymore. Non-essentials or preferences to the level of dogma and making them a test of orthodoxy and conditions of fellowship. Okay. Legalism says everything's dogma. And if you don't agree with me, you're a heretic and I'm not going to associate with you. Now, is everything dogma? Is everything pref doctrine? 
is everything preferences. Okay. So you're, you can become legalistic by saying, I'm going to elevate a, a preference to the level of dogma, and I'm going to use that as a test of whether you're a Christian or not and whether I'm going to associate with you or not. So, for example, what's a preference? Let's just pick on a Bible translation for a moment. Okay. Is the King James Bible the only Bible? Do you know people that have elevated the King James Bible to that's the only word of God, and if you don't hold to the King James Bible, you're not a Christian and I'm not going to associate with you? Okay. What have they done with that? They've elevated a non-essential to a dogma, and they become legalistic. Okay, So that's one extreme that you can fall into is being very legalistic. Now, the other extreme is what we call license. This is basically saying, well, I'm just going to abandon the clear teaching of Scripture and anything goes in the church. It doesn't really matter what you do as long as you just love one another. Both of those are wrong. So what does a healthy church need? A healthy church needs to have a clear stance on issues of dogma. You need to know what the dogma are, i.e., if you're part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, you need to know what, are, what the essentials are. What are the essentials? What are the hills we're going to die on? Okay, a healthy church needs to have a clear explanation on issues of doctrine with some flexibility to disagree. Okay, so let's talk about some doctrines that we're going to be... All right, so what, what, what's a doctrine as a Baptist church we're not going to be... We're not going to budge on. Baptism by immersion, right? We're, we're, that's a doctrine that we hold to that we're pretty inflexible on. Okay? Another doctrine that we have as a church is that you can't lose your salvation. Now, does that mean that you can't be a part of things if you believe differently? No, it just means that a church that's healthy needs to clearly explain what the doctrines are and where there are some flexibility to disagree. And then also, here's a healthy church. We need to have a non-judgmental, non-legalistic atmosphere when it comes to secondary issues and preferences. Now, what's really difficult to understand what Paul's saying in verse 1 is he uses two words there. The ESV says, don't quarrel over opinions. Let me give you um, the King James, the New American Standard, the NIV, how they, how they translate that. Some of you may have those translations. So the King James Version says, be ye not, oh, him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. That helps you understand that better, doesn't it? Okay. New American Standard. Now accept the one who's weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. NIV says, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Okay, there's two words here. Um, opinions, disputable matters. So we get our word dialogue from that. Dialogismos. Um, it means discussion, dialogue, thinking, discussing, deliberating, opinions, doubts, scruples. So your opinion, your conscience, your, um, your stance, I guess. And then the other word that Paul uses is to don't, don't fight over that or don't quarrel. Or don't, there, don't let there be divisions. 
don't pass judgment. So there's really two ways you can read this, and I think they're both right, depending on the original language. You can read it, number one, don't pass judgment over the doubts of the weaker brother. Or, which I think is probably the better of the two, don't quarrel or get into arguments over disputable matters of opinions. In other words, there are some gray areas in the Christian life that aren't dogma and probably aren't doctrine, but they're matters of conscience and they're matters of personal decisions that we need to, what does Paul say there? Welcome accept one another. So the primary command in verse 1 is to welcome the weaker brother. That word welcome, we'll talk about that because your, your translation may say accept. It means to have a warm fellowship or a genuine love where really you accept that person into your heart as a brother or sister in Christ. Okay? So if somebody has a different opinion than you on a secondary matter... You shouldn't hold them at arm's length and say, you're weird. You should welcome them. Okay? Now, anytime a pastor stands up and says, let's be welcoming, that can be misunderstood in our culture today. So let me give a caution. Welcoming and affirming. In today's culture of moral relativism, we have some inclusive and welcoming churches that have abused this idea. Welcoming does not mean that we tolerate unrepentant sin or that anybody can become a member of Emmanuel. You have to have some standards of what you're going to hold to, okay? Now, John Stott's made a very... I read that when I was reading John Stott, he's very concise, and I read this and I thought, that made me think twice, but then I agreed with him. But let me give you his quote and see what you think about it. John Stott made a very helpful statement. He says, For though God's love is indeed unconditional, His acceptance of us is not, since it depends upon our repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. At first that sounded a little weird. God's acceptance of us is not, is not unconditional. What does that mean? God, have you ever heard somebody, God loves me just the way I am. Therefore, I can continue to live however I want. Now, is it true that God loves you? Is it true that God's love is unconditional? But does God require repentance and faith to come to Christ to have salvation? Yes. Okay. So that's it's a half truth. Okay. So really what Paul's saying is here is don't make church an environment where everybody's walking around debating about dumb stuff. Have you ever been around people that just like to debate and argue? improve their point, and is it usually over something important? <laughs> it's over secondary issues that aren't that big a deal. Um, it's not dogma. It's not even doctrine. It's just kind of some, some secondary issues. So the main command here is to accept or welcome the person who's weak in faith. Now, the person who's weak in faith in the context is the Jewish Christian who's still holding on to the dietary laws and to the, the holy days of the Jewish calendar. Paul would not consider himself a weaker brother. He'd consider himself a stronger one. In other words, a person who's strong in the faith has a clear conscience to be able to do some things with Christian freedom without... Well, just hold that thought. We'll get back to that because we're going to talk about the conscience a little bit later. So Paul gives three reasons here 
why we should welcome the weaker Christian and not quarrel over non-essentials. Number one, the, reason, the first reason is, well, God himself has welcomed the weaker brother. Okay, so in verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Okay, there are probably Gentiles in the Roman church that said, I don't care what I eat because food is food is food. Whether it was sacrificed to an idol or whether it came off, um, you know, came out, of, you, you grew it in your own house or your own house, you grew it on your, on your own farm. Food is food is food. It's okay to eat, especially meat. I don't care. Now, a Jewish Christian would say, I'm not sure if that meat's kosher, and I don't want to take the chance, so I'll just eat vegetables, not because I want to be a vegetarian, because I, I just don't know what that meat is. And so the best way to not eat something that's not kosher is to eat only vegetables. And so Paul says, listen, some of you, it's, it's cool to eat whatever you want to eat. Some of you want your kosher, kosher dietary laws. Just chill out and don't worry about it. Let the person who wants to eat only vegetables, don't get on to him for doing that. And for the person, don't be shocked that a person eats whatever he wants to eat because food is food is food. And, and notice what he says here. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment? Okay, who are you? And at the end of verse 3, for God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. So how dare we despise or reject or look down on someone that God has accepted. Now, John Stott has another good quote. I really like this one. Here's what he said. Indeed, the best way to determine what our attitude to other people should be is to determine what God's attitude to them is. This principle is even better than the golden rule. What's the golden rule? Treat others as you would want them to treat you. Okay, he says this is even better because it's safe to treat others as we would like them to treat us, but it's safer still to treat them as God does. So do you treat the other person and do you see the other person and do you accept the other person the way God has accepted them? Or do you pass judgment on them for what they're doing? Okay, so that's reason number one. You need to accept each other on secondary matters because I mean, God himself has accepted, accepted them. Okay, reason two, Jesus died and rose again for them as Lord. Okay, Paul now shifts verse 5 to the festival days or the observance of special days. So the first illustration he uses is food because that was probably the issue. They were eating kosher. So one person esteems in verse 5 one day better than another while another esteems all days alike. So the Gentiles are like, you, you're, you're celebrating Passover, it's just another day. And the Jews are like, no, it's not another day, it's, it's part of the Jewish holiday, it's part of the Jewish calendar. And so, basically, we really shouldn't quarrel over days. Paul says in Colossians 2, 16-17, 
Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festivals or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So don't pass judgment whether... Don't, basically, Paul's saying to the... Paul's saying... Now, here's the burden. Who's the burden on here? Is the burden on the, the stronger brother or is the burden on the weaker brother? The burden's on the stronger brother. You've got some Jewish Christians that are still weak in their faith and they're holding on to those identity markers, kosher food laws and, and, and special days. Don't get on to them for wanting to do those. Those aren't that important. They're, they're secondary issues. If they want to go do that, let them do that. Don't pass judgment on them. And then weaker brother, weaker Jew, don't get mad at the Gentiles because they're not eating kosher like you are. Just both of you chill out and learn to get, to get together on secondary issues. Because the thing that Paul says in verse 5 is, is very important. What does he say in verse 5? Each person, this is the second part of verse 5, each one should be what? Fully convinced in his own mind. That means you should be convinced in your conscience that what you're doing is okay. Nobody else can make that decision for you. Let's talk about binding the conscience for just a moment. This is not in your notes. As a pastor, do I have the authority to bind your conscience on issues of non-essentials? In other words, let me give you an example. Do I have the authority to stand up from the pulpit and say, if you go see a rated R movie or watch one on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or whatever channel you get, you get you are in major sin and you're in danger of losing your salvation and going to hell. Do I have the authority to do that? No. Can I stand up as a pastor and say, if you don't trust Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior and you die in your sins, you will spend eternity in hell. Can I say that? Is that a dogma? Okay. So sometimes pastors or even other Christians can elevate an issue that's non-essential and bind another Christian's conscience when, when it, like, it's their conviction, but it may not be another Christian's conviction. So we need to be very careful because um, some pastors have actually committed spiritual abuse of their congregants by basically browbeating them into legalistic behavior and binding their conscience on things that shouldn't be bound and making them feel less than or making them feel like they're, they're not up to snuff on issues that aren't necessarily dogma. And so we've got to be fully convinced in our minds on issues that are secondary, that are non-essentials. And we'll talk about that in just a few moments. Uh, but the main point here is in verse 9. What Paul says there is that, look, verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. The main issue is that Jesus died for those people. Okay? God has accepted them. Jesus has died for them. So if God accepted them and Jesus died for them, 
what right do you have to pass judgment on them when God himself has accepted them and Jesus himself has died for their sins? So welcome the weaker Christian. And then the reason three, if you're so quick to pass judgment, God alone is the judge, and we are not to act in judgment on other people's stances or opinions or convictions. So look at what verse 10 says. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Okay. We can't pass judgment on the weaker brother. But, okay, aha, we can't pass judgment on anybody. Do you know what the most quoted verse that non-Christians know in the Bible? If you ask a non-Christian, what do you think is the, mo- the top verse that most non-Christians know? Judge not lest you be judged. It's not John 3.16. It's, ju- it's judge not lest you be judged. Aha, they got us here. They got a verse. Don't pass judgment on your brother. You Christians are always being judgmental. You should not ever judge another person. Okay, is Paul here talking about issues of sin? Or is he talking about issues of secondary issues? Issues of secondary issues. Is he talking about secondary issues? He's talking about secondary issues. Okay, as Christians, so here's the question. As Christians, does this mean that anything goes in the church and that we're never to make a judgment or exercise church discipline or ever call anybody out for any type of sin? Is that what Paul's saying here? Because actually, in 1 Corinthians 15, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, this is the incestuous relationship in the church in Corinth. Paul says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Are you arrogant? Are you rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. Paul says, listen, there's incest going on in the church. You guys are okay with it. You should be mourning and kick this guy out. And then further down in that passage, in 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13, Paul says, Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul gives a list of very specific issues here that are obviously non-negotiable. Is sexual immorality and swindling and idolatry and reviling and drunkards and incest, are those clear violations of Scripture? Yes. Are we as a church, can we make judgments upon that and address sinful behavior that's clear-cut? Yes. On secondary issues, third issues, Matters of non-essentials, can we judge? So here's the point. We need to be very careful. We have no right to declare another Christian as unsaved or judge their eternal destiny. Because what do you not know? Can you read their heart? Do you know where they are with the Lord? Now, what can you do? There's a few things you can do. 
You can pray for them because you may have some suspicions. It's appropriate to warn them. But you personally, you personally have no right to declare a person unsaved. As a matter of fact, the only authority that's been given is to the entire church, and that's when the process of church discipline goes to the very full extent and a person is actually finally excommunicated. Then the entire church makes that pronouncement. And even then, they're not pronouncing a, a, making a pronouncement on their eternal destiny. They're just saying that at this point in time, this person's unrepentant and they're outside the church. Okay? Because here's the point. Who's going to judge on that final day? God. It says God there. Every single one of us is going to have to stand before the judgment seat. And then Paul there quotes from Isaiah 45, 23. God says in Isaiah 45, 23, By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. So Paul says, As long as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue will confess. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So let's retrace our steps. Welcome the weaker Christian. Why? God's welcomed him. Jesus has died for him. And all of us are going to have to stand before the judgment seat so we can't judge others on secondary non-essentials. Okay? Now, that's the principle. As we go further into verses 13 through 23, the second half of chapter 14... Paul is going to give us some teachings on how to maintain unity in the church. Okay. Now, why do I think it's important to talk about unity in the church? Because what did I tell you was the history of the Roman church here? Who, was, who, who founded the church? Jews. What happened in AD 49? Jews were kicked out. For a five-year period... It was predominantly Gentile. A.D. 54, Jews come back. So now you have a mixture of Jews and Gentiles trying to figure out how to live together in the life of the church. Okay? Different backgrounds. So let me just ask you a question. At Emmanuel Baptist Church, are we all coming from different backgrounds? Ethnic, socioeconomic, cultural. <coughs> we were a diverse group of people but we're called to live together. And so Paul's going to talk about how we do that. So let's read verses 13 to the end of the chapter. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother's grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the, for the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and of peace and of joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. 
Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Okay, Paul's going to give some steps here of how to maintain unity in the church. And the first one he says there is, he's assuming it's going on right now. He's stop, stop passing judgment on each other. Don't become arrogant and legalistic on both sides. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another any longer. Okay. I'm going to get in hot water here, but I'll say it anyway. Um, there have been times in this church when... Oh, man, how do I want to say this? I don't, I don't think I'm going to say it. <laughs> um, I was going to give you guys an illustration, but I feel like it may be too personal to, to bring it up. Um, let's think of another, let's think of a secondary issue. Um, well, I'll say it anyway. <laughs> I guess who, I guess who cares? Um, there have been times when those who choose to homeschool their children have looked down upon those who've chosen to public school their children. And I'm not here to say one or the other because... It's a family decision. Is, do we have a stance in the church which, which way you should do it? It's a family decision. Okay. So if you choose to homeschool your kid, that's your decision. If you choose to public school your kid, that's your decision. Okay. So public school, child, public school families should not look down on homeschool families and say, why are, you put, why are you homeschooling your kids? That takes a lot of time and energy, and why are you doing that? Just let, you, know, you should just take them to public school. Homeschool families shouldn't look at public school families and say, why are you letting the government you know, raise your kids when you could be? All the different arguments, okay? So there can be a legalistic attitude. Is that a, is that a life or death salvation issue? That's a personal conscience issue. Okay? But it can be very divisive, can't it? Because people have very strong opinions on types of schooling. Whatever schooling, or I could have inserted Christian school in there or charter school. or Whatever, whatever schooling you have, there, that can be some pretty knockdown, drag out fights of opinions. And Paul is like, stop passing judgment on each other on secondary matters that don't really matter. Okay. And more importantly, the second part of verse 12, 13 there, we must not put stumbling blocks in the way of our brother. He uses two words there. Rather, never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Two words there, stumbling block. So the first word is stumbling block. That was to hit or strike against a stone in the path which causes major harm. You know what a stumbling block is. Have you ever... It never, it never fails for me. Every time I go hiking, because I've got such big feet, and I'm always talking with Don and not paying attention, I'm like walking, and I always end up like knocking my foot on a boulder or a rock or something, and just like, what's a stumbling block? Stone or something in the middle of the path that if you hit, it's gonna, if you trip over, you're going to hurt yourself. Okay, A stumbling block. It's a block that causes you to stumble. So don't put something in somebody's path that's going to make them stumble. Okay, hindrance, that's the word scandal or scandalon. That's a piece of wood or a movable stick used to trigger a snare for an animal in a trap. 
So in both cases, don't do anything that would cause the weaker brother to stumble. Now, who's, who's got the more weight of responsibility here? The stronger or the weaker? Okay, so let me give you an illustration as pastor. Okay, so nowhere in the Bible, and, and I will, like, for example, it's interesting. Um, I know some pastors who tell their congregations that it's a sin to drink. And they even put it in their church covenant. Like, you can't drink. If you're, like, if you belong to the church, you can't drink. And I'm like, whoa, that's a pretty strong statement because I can't stand before anybody and say, you can't drink because I can't find a verse that teaches that. Okay. What does the Bible teach? You shall not get drunk with wine. Okay. So getting drunk's a sin. Drinking is not. Okay. Now, that's a personal decision for you to determine that. Okay. So for pastor, for me, I personally have the freedom biblically to drink if I wanted to. Okay. I choose not to. And here's the reason why I choose not to. Number one, I choose not to because of the position that I'm in as pastor. And the reason I do that is because I know there's some people in our church that have struggled with alcohol. And for them to see their pastor drinking, it may be a stumbling block for them. It may cause offense and be like, well, you know, my pastor drinks. and my... So I don't know what it's going to do to other people. So as the person who has the freedom to drink, I choose not to in order not to put a stumbling block in front of somebody that would. But would I ever go to anybody else and say, that has to be your stance? No, I can't because that's not biblical. I can't bind your conscience on a secondary issue. So the point is, if you think it's going to be a stumbling block, then you probably need to think twice about what you're doing on on matters of secondary issues. Um, and again, that's a personal decision. I can't bind your conscience on what that is. something you're going to have to figure out. And Paul's here talking about food. And basically he's saying, verse 14, I know and persuade in the Lord Jesus that nothing's unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. What's Paul saying? Food is food is food is food. But if what I eat is going to cause somebody to get really offended, I probably shouldn't eat it. So what would Paul do if he was among Jewish people? What would he do if he went into their house? He would eat kosher. When he's around Gentiles, what would he do? Eat bacon. <laughs> okay, or whatever. <laughs> he would eat non-kosher. Because he didn't... But he knew that it depended on the context. And so he's persuaded that, that no food is unclean of itself. Even Jesus said this. This is what got Jesus in a little bit of hot water. In Mark 7, 14-23, He called people to Him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into Him can defile Him, like bacon. But the things that come out of a person are what defile Him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you not also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him food? Since it enters not his heart, 
but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So, the main point Paul says here is, for some of you, doing what you're doing is okay. You're not violating any biblical mandate. But you may need to refrain from doing that if it's going to cause a stumbling block to a weaker brother. Because in verse 15, he says, consistent and chronic stumbling blocks will eventually lead to the destruction of one's faith. Look at verse 15. If your brother's grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died you're not walking in love now when when paul says you're going to destroy the one for whom christ died can that mean that he loses his or she loses her salvation we can't mean that based upon everything that we've learned so far so your being a stumbling block to a person does not mean that that person's going to lose their salvation okay but what it does mean is that your actions are not in a vacuum and that, sh- that there can be extreme consequences on the body of Christ. I mean, oftentimes, what do we think? We're very individualistic, isolated, privatized Americans. I can do what I want to do, and I don't care how it affects anybody else. Now, on secondary matters, you may be able to do that, but you also may need to think twice, is this going to impact somebody in a negative way? Because what Paul says there is you're really not walking in love. He says, you're not walking in love. So the best way to show love in the context of this passage of Scripture is for you to limit your own freedom out of respect for the weaker Christian. So 1 Corinthians 8, 9 says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You have a right, a Christian right, to do some things that are not in violation of the Bible but make sure that it's not a stumbling block to the weak. Now, verse 17 is the key here. Paul's like, you guys, are getting, you guys are getting all wound up about secondary issues. What people eat, what people drink, what holidays they celebrate, all these non-essentials. And so he just kind of comes down to verse 17 and says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, of peace, and of joy in the Holy Spirit. What's he talking about? What's more important, the kingdom of God or secondary issues? What's more important? The kingdom of God. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6, 33? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. So what is the kingdom of God all about? He says right there, it's related to righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We've seen this before back in Romans chapter 5. The kingdom of God is about your salvation and what God gives to you in the gospel. And so those words, righteousness, peace, joy, Romans 5, 1 through 2, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, that's the righteousness we have, we have peace with 
God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice, there's the joy, in the hope of glory of God. Now, in verse 19, Paul makes a very strong statement there. What does verse 19 say? So then, let us pursue... What does pursue mean? Chase after, make it a priority. What? What makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Paul's going to introduce this whole idea of a building structure. Do you guys know what the word, where the word edify comes from? We want to edify somebody. Have you ever heard of an edifice? What's an edifice? It's a building. So Paul's saying, listen... You and I as Christians need to be about building each other up. What's the opposite of building up? Tearing down. Have you ever guys seen a demolition of a building? Like in per- I've never seen like I've seen those shows where they like blow up a downtown building and it just comes falling down, um, or the big the old ball like in the old days that come and crash the the, the building down. It's interesting because in um, verse twenty. Paul says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. That word destroy there means to tear down a building. Down to its foundation. What's the work that God's doing? This is very important. What's the work that God's doing in your life or in the church? What's what's God's plan for the church? For it to be what? built up in love and encouragement and in peace. And Paul's saying that's God's plan for the church, for it to be built up. Don't get all on each other and actually tear it down. Because we're being built into a spiritual house. We're being built up. The church is a graphic picture of the temple, the spiritual house of God. Ephesians 2, 19-22. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, that's us, being joined together, that's us, grows into the holy temple of the Lord, that's us. In Him you're also being built together, that's us, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is building us into a family. He's building us up into this church family. And Paul's saying, don't do anything that's going to tear that work down. You want to pursue peace. Because remember, what's the debt? What did we look at last week? What's the one debt that we have that we can never pay off? Go back to chapter 13. What does 13 verse 8 say? Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. We owe an obligation to love one another. Now, in verse 22... Paul says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What Paul's saying is here is we need to be very careful how we use our freedom 
in Christ because we don't want to be judged by God for approving something we shouldn't. If we have any doubts, if you have any doubts at all, personally, you probably should not engage in it. You should never violate your conscience on secondary matters. Now, you may have the freedom to do some things, but it may not be the best thing for you to do. So what I want to talk about um, is, 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 well, let's go into chapter 15 because he's still talking about the same thing here of building up the church. So let's go into chapter 15. And he's going to keep this whole thing about building up the church, being patient, having unity. All right, let's look, look at verses 1 through, uh, let's look for 1 through 6. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul says there to bear with the failings of the weak and don't please yourself. So instead of tearing down your brother or sister or tearing down the church or, or using your freedom for selfish pleasure, we're to build up our neighbor. We're to build up our brother in Christ. Galatians 5, 13-14 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So bear with, tolerate, be patient with those that are weaker than you in the faith. Don't be selfish and please yourself, but look for what builds up your brother or sister. Because it, it was Christ who did that. Notice what, what Paul says. Paul gives Christ as the example. He says there in verse 3, For Christ did not please himself. Think about that for a moment. Christ did not please himself. What would happen if Jesus lived only for himself when he came? Would we ever have salvation? Jesus totally lived for his people, living for us. And so... He quotes Psalm 69.9 there that says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach have fallen on me. Jesus served. Here's Jesus' attitude. Matthew 20, 26-28. Jesus said, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be, your ser would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve. He came not to please Himself. He came to give His life away. 
And then you've got that Philippians 2 passage. I'm not going to read it because it's long, but you know what it is. Jesus didn't count himself equality with God, something to be grasped, but came to earth and humbled himself and, and served to the point of death on a cross. Now, it's interesting. Look at verse 4. It's like a little side note that Paul puts in there. Paul says in verse 4, Whatever was written in former days, now this had to be the Old Testament because the New Testament was in the process of being written. So whatever's written in the former days, the Old Testament was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul says, hey, the Old Testament is really important. That's why we preach from the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. But notice what he says in verses 5 and 6. He gives this prayer. What does he pray? It's like a little benediction, a little blessing. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. So God says, or Paul says, I want God to give you the grace to live in harmony with one another. Now, what does that mean and what does that not mean? Does living in harmony, does living in unity in the life of a church mean that, um, whoops, let's go back here. Does that mean that we are lockstep and agree on every minute detail of non-essentials? Is that what living in harmony means? No, because that would defeat everything Paul said here of getting along. But it does mean that as a church family, we're unified on the essentials, the dogma and the key doctrines now it's interesting here what is twice what words does paul use in verse four and the words he uses in verse five you guys look there with your own eyes through endurance and encouragement verse five may the god of endurance and encouragement why does paul pray for endurance and encouragement when it comes to loving others in the church so here's the question is loving one another welcoming one another, navigating this Christian freedom, other people's consciousness, learning to be flexible on secondary matters, not being legalistic. Is that easy? No. That's why we need encouragement and endurance. Church would be a whole lot easier if there weren't people. Did you hear the story about the guy that, it was Sunday morning, and the guy didn't want to get up, and he's just like rolling around his bed, and he's really frustrated, and he, like he just, I don't want to go to church today. His wife was like, well, honey, you know, get, get it together. He's like, I don't want to go to church today. Those people there hate me. I hate them. I can't stand it. It's the last thing I want to do. I do not want to go to church today. And she says, honey, you've got to go. You're the pastor. <laughs> it's, that's not how I feel, by the way. But... I've known pastors that don't want to deal with people. Just let me preach. Actually, some pastors of megachurches, they have a green room, and they have, a, they have like a, they go up and preach, and they have a special passageway from the stage back to a green room where they never have to deal with people. You guys know Mark Driscoll? He was a big-time pastor. Of, I mean, he kind of had a, he got fired by his church and had some things happen, but that's what he did. He didn't want to deal with people. So he'd go out and preach, and then he'd go out of a secret pass. Like, after he'd preach, he'd, go back into this green room and just hang out because he didn't want to be around. He just wanted to preach. He didn't want to be around people. 
Now, you can probably get away with that if you have a church of 10,000. But in a church of 300 like ours, there's not much you can... I mean, I can't... <laughs> there's no way I can hide after, after the service. Where did Pastor Sean go? He's hiding. I don't want to talk to you guys. You've worn me out. No. Anyway, it's not easy being unified. It's not easy loving one another. It's not easy navigating this. And so that's why Paul says, God, the God of endurance and encouragement has got to give you the strength. But what's the purpose? Look at verse 6. Why? Why do we do this? That together with one voice, we may glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we pray for unity? So that we can all together with one voice live for the glory of God. What's the first statement in our mission statement as Emmanuel Baptist Church? We exist to display God's glory. It's all about God's glory together, living that out. Now, let's talk about freedom of conscience on secondary matters. Because I'm talking about things that aren't clearly, explicitly taught in the Bible. They're not issues of dogma. They're not even issues of doctrine. But they're, they're, they're matters of conscience. They're gray areas that you may or may not have Christian freedom to do. So um, eight questions to ask before you decide to engage in an activity that's a gray area or secondary matter. But I want to give you a verse before we look at these eight things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I may have the freedom to do these, but they may not be the best thing to do. And they could possibly be enslaving. So here's eight questions to ask before you engage in a secondary matter of conscience that's not a clear violation of Scripture, okay? Let's make sure we understand this. We're not talking about something that's clearly taught in Scripture. We're talking about a gray area that you may or may not have freedom to do. Here's the question. First one, am I fully persuaded that it's right? Remember Paul says... You've got to determine in your own mind. Back back in chapter 14, I think it was verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Are you fully persuaded that you're okay to do it? You have no qualms about it. Question number two, can I do it unto the Lord with a clear conscience? Can I clearly say what I'm doing, my conscience doesn't bother me, I'm okay doing it, I think God's okay with it. Number three, can I do it without being a a major stumbling block to others? Now, you really have to be careful with the stumbling block issue because you don't want to live in fear that everything you do is going to be a stumbling block. You, I said major stumbling block, so you've got, to, you've got to think about that. Okay. Number four is what I'm going to do, does it bring peace and harmony in my life, in my family, in my church, those that I'm around? Number five, does it build up or does it tear down? Number six, is it beneficial or is it helpful? I may be able to do it, but it may not be the best thing. It may not be beneficial. It may not be helpful. Number seven, will it dominate or enslave me? I may have freedom to do it, but will it eventually become an idol or will it be something that, that dominates me or enslaves me? And then number eight, does it bring glory to God? So only you can answer those questions and only you can pray before the Lord and you have to have that matter of conscience. But Paul does say there at the end of chapter 14, if you have any doubts about it, you probably shouldn't do it. If you have any doubts, you probably shouldn't do it. But if you prayed through it and you've gotten counsel and you feel it's okay and your conscience is clear, 
then you should proceed and have freedom to do it. Um, and then don't look down on somebody else if they have a different, they come to a different conclusion on a secondary matter. Okay. All right. Verse 7, therefore welcome one another. Uh, the word welcome means to often to pull somebody aside for a side conversation, to welcome them into the life of the church. But notice how Paul says it. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Okay, how did Christ welcome you? Did Christ say, hey, sinner, get your act together, and when you got it all figured out, I'll love you? How did Christ welcome us? What if we only welcomed somebody else if they had it all together, or they fit our profile, or they were perfect? Nobody in the church would be welcoming anybody. What if Christ had the attitude that he would only accept or welcome us if we were worthy enough or good enough or polished enough or together enough to merit his love. We would never be welcomed. So Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? All right. Let's bring this puppy to a close and look at verses 8 through the end of the chapter, or not to the end of the chapter, 8 through 13. So Romans 15, chapter 15 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Now, who are the circumcised? Your translation may say to, the, to Israel or to the Jewish people. To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Okay, Paul basically says here, Jews and Gentiles, kind of going back to Romans 9-11. through 11. Jesus came first to the Jewish people because he was from the lineage of the Jewish people. He was promised to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was from the, the lineage of, of David. He came first to the Jewish people, but then ultimately the purpose of Christ's coming was not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles also. And what Paul does is he quotes from a bunch of Old Testament passages there. Notice how he says, again it said, again it said. So Psalm 1849, he quotes from that. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, among the Gentiles, among the, the nations I will sing to your name. Psalm 117.1, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. And then Isaiah 11.10, in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Um, look at the end of verse 12. In him will the Gentiles hope. Hope. Verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So what's the key word there? Hope. Why does Paul end this entire section on welcoming the weaker Christian with this issue of hope? It's interesting. 
He says, I want you to experience the abounding, the overflowing of hope in the Holy Spirit. Here's what I think Paul's thinking about. I think Paul is envisioning that final day in heaven when both Jews and Gentiles, all God's people, will be together in perfect unity before the throne, praising Jesus. We have struggles right now getting along. We can dispute over secondary matters. We can have disagreements. Our ultimate goal is to work together for unity, for peace, for building each other up. It's never going to be perfect in this world, but one day, that final day, we have the hope that all of God's people and all the conflicts we've ever had will come to an end and we'll all be together before the throne of grace, praising Jesus as one unified people. Now, during the Thirty Years' War, which was a bloody war back in Europe, um, 1618 to 1648, where they were fighting over religion, the Protestants and the Catholics were killing each other. It was one of the most bloody wars in the history of Europe, and it was over religion. There was a German theologian named Rupertus Maldinius, and he wrote these famous words in a tract that was circulated in 1627. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Now, let's let's unpack that because this is a famous statement in church history. In essentials, unity. What does that mean? In the dogma... In the things that we absolutely have to believe, we've got to be unified. Those are hills we're going to die on. We've got to be unified in the dogma, the absolute essentials. Okay. In non-essentials, liberty, what does that mean? In the secondary matters, we should have freedom to what? Disagree. Don't bind each other's consciences. Don't pass judgment. In those secondary matters, we should have freedom to disagree. But in all things... No matter what, we're supposed to have charity or love. So can you love someone with whom you disagree? Can you speak the truth in love? So I've done a lot of talking tonight, and this probably brings up a lot of questions. So we've got about 15 minutes left. What questions do you guys have tonight related to this topic of secondary matters and matters of conscience and not judging other people that are weaker in the faith. Come on now, no snide remarks. Yeah, I don't know if you were here at the beginning. Yeah, when I did the dogma, doctrine, and preferences on the board, um, so dogma are those absolute essentials that we, you have to believe to be a Christian. It's like if you deviate from dogma, you're either like a cult or a heresy um, and those would be like the Trinity, Jesus is the only way, um, the, the deity of Christ, the cross, the resurrection, salvation by grace, the, the authority of the Bible, heaven, hell. Doctrines, on the other hand, are issues that good, well-meaning Christians can look at a scripture and agree to disagree. And so that's where the denominations come. So, for example, a doctrine would be, can you lose your salvation? We as Southern Baptists and those who are Reformed in our theology would say, no, we believe the Bible teaches you can't lose your salvation. But like a Nazarene or a Pentecostal, they would say, no, we believe you can lose your salvation. Now, are we going to say they're not going to be in heaven because they believe something different on a doctrine? No, it's just differences of how they understand things. Presbyterians sprinkle babies. We baptize by immersion. 
It's a secondary issue. Issues about end times, um, gender roles and leadership. Do you have women pastors? Um, charismatic gifts. Do you speak in tongues? Different things that you can agree to disagree upon, but they're not going to mean that they're not going to they're not going to prevent you from being in heaven. Does that make sense? So, for example, today, every Wednesday afternoon, I pray with seven other pastors in our area. Okay, so we've got First Baptist. We've got the Berean Church, which is like a Bible church. We've got the Evangelical Free. We've got Nazarene. We've got the Foursquare. And we've got Assembly of God. Now, sometimes we discuss our differences and have some very interesting discussions. But we're unified in the gospel. And all of us love each other and we pray for each other and we encourage each other. But we have very distinct differences on secondary issues. But we put those aside to come together to pray each week and support each other in the community. But if you go to one of their churches, they're going to have distinctives that are different than ours. But all of us are going to be in heaven because we all agree upon the dogma. Does that make sense, Shauna? So that's kind of why there's denominations. Um, because you take secondary issues that are disputable and you have differences of opinion. Yeah, yeah, and, and, I, and I would say this. Okay, so dogma, doctrine, preferences. Okay, let me ask you guys a question. Where do you think most churches struggle and most churches split, most churches blow up? Is it under dogma, doctrine, or preferences? Preferences probably, right? The church split because, you know, some people wanted the carpet to be green and some wanted the carpet to be purple. I don't know. Um, and, I, and, I, and, I, and this is what I say in the new members class, and I've often said is, if Emmanuel's going to have a knockdown, drag out, blow up, better be over dogma and not over something dumb um, like a preference. Now, can we be strong in certain doctrines? Yes. Can we agree to disagree on certain doctrines? Yes. Can we agree to disagree on certain dogmas? No. Any other questions? Can you guys think of any other like hot topics that would be secondary issues that would be matters of conscience that people fight over that are non-essentials that people like people make a mountain out of a molehill in the Christian world that's not really even that big of a deal. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, the authorized version, the 1611 authorized version, which is the King James version. It's the only one that's authorized. Well, I'm just saying that's what they would say. Authorized by King James. All right, so we're getting close to the end here. I think I think I planned out probably two more weeks in Romans, and we shall be done. And it'll kind of lead us up to spring break. So when we come back after spring break, because we're not meeting that week, I think we've got four or five, four more weeks. So you guys need to let me know what you want to study, or I'm going to pick it. So think about maybe something you want to study in the next couple of weeks. But um, we started Romans back in August, and we're almost done here in almost March.
All right. Shall we pray? Yeah, we shall. All right. Father, thank you for this time that we've had tonight. And Lord, we do want to be um, unified as a church on the essentials. Lord, we never want to back down from your truth. But Lord, we want to have freedom to love each other and welcome each other on, on peripheral matters, gray, gray, gray areas. And Lord, help us not to put stumbling blocks in front of others. Help us to be have, having clear consciences. Help us to pursue peace. Help us to pursue that which builds up and doesn't tear down. Help us to walk in love. Help us to welcome one another. Lord, if, if we had the attitude that you had of being a servant, uh, things would be a whole lot different in our lives. So, Lord, help us to model your example of serving others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.